0: Romance Mythology, an introduction to Dante's Divine Comedy by Gil Bailey, narrated by Gil Bailey, and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, part three. Begin this morning with a little bit of science. Now, I pick up most of my science uh, in passing, Uh, and I picked up these two things in passing, one from the radio and one from the newspaper. But they seem to have something to do with what we're going to talk about today, so I want to share them with you. A woman named Barbara Smuts is a researcher who has been studying baboons at the Ubaru cliffs in Kenya, watching their behavior and so on. She says that the attraction between the males and females turns out not to be all that related to reproduction. Uh, it seems to have something more like what we would call friendship involved, or maybe even not friendship, but some strange form of attraction which is not altogether explained by reference to the sexual drives. And she describes an anecdote in her observations, which is this. A male is some yards away from a female, and they are about their separate business. And suddenly the female uh, stops and looks towards the male, apparently with great intensity, and keeps watching him. And he then stops, as though almost aware of her glance, and looks at her. As soon as their eyes meet, she twitches quickly and looks at her foot and becomes very interested in grooming her foot all of a sudden. And she grooms her foot with great intensity for a few seconds and then glances up and sees that he's still looking, looks back down at the foot. There's a country music song, I was looking back to see if you were looking back to see if I was looking back to see if you were looking back. Well, what does that have to do with what we're going to talk about today? Here is a painting of a famous scene in Dante's life. The first of these famous scenes, well, one of the early ones, was when Dante met Beatrice in the street and she said hello. And he went home and poetry came out of the pores of his skin. Some while later, he met Beatrice in the street and she looked the other way. And he went home and poetry came out of the pores of his skin. (laughs) Well, I admit that there's a great distance between what was happening to the baboons in Kenya and what was going on between Beatrice and Dante. But they may be related. Because this researcher, Barbara Smuts, begins to surmise that the old paradigm of the dawn of consciousness, which she regards as one which says we troubled ourselves to come to consciousness because of the harshness of the physical environment and our needs to deal with it with tools and techniques that assured our survival. She says her research with the baboons indicates otherwise. Her research indicates that we may have come to consciousness precisely in order to deal with the perplexities of that little relationship that she saw developing between those two baboons, where they glanced away and then glanced at one another and seemed to be wrestling with both an attraction and a reticence. And she began to surmise that that may be the dawn of consciousness. Bear that in mind because later on Dante will say something that is strikingly similar to that. The second piece of science for this morning has to do with the other secular Madonna in our cultural history, namely the Mona Lisa. Lillian Schwartz, a computer technician, has employed computer graphics to superimpose a Leonardo self-portrait on to the Mona Lisa, and she has concluded that the Mona Lisa is a self-portrait of Leonardo. Of course, the Jungians could ask for no more. This should cause great glee in the Jungian community. But for us, it just raises a question. What is being seen? Is what's being seen actually there or not? And if not, where is it? And if it is there, where did it come from and why? Dante gets visitations from the personified love after he has some encounters with Beatrice. And love speaks to him in one of these encounters, the, the primary one, and says to him, love speaks in Latin first. Dante is writing, the book we're going to talk about today is *La Vita Nuova. It's written in the vulgar tongue. Italian. Uh, As you know, uh, up until about this time in history, all the serious writings were written in the, uh, the formal language. It was at one time Greek and then it became Latin. But about this time, people of Daring, Dante, Eckhart, Chaucer, begin to write in the vulgar tongue. And my, oh my, what poetry begins to come out of that what had been considered lower form. Anyway, this is a book in the vulgar tongue, but love at least begins by speaking in the more formal Latin. Uh, It's interesting that love actually begins then later on to talk a little Italian himself, which is, I think, a sign of the incarnational impulse. But in any case, his first utterance to Dante is, Ego dominus tus, I am your Lord. And on the subject of what it is that is being seen here by Dante, by the baboon, by Leonardo, is it really there? And if it is there, where did it come from and why? And if it is not there, where is it? William Butler Yeats wrote a poem entitled Ego Dominus Tours, in which he tried to grapple with that question. It is a dialogue between two people. The first says, by the help of an image... I call to my own opposite, summon all that I have handled least, least looked upon. And the other says, and I would find myself and not an image. Perfect put down. To which the other responds, that is our modern hope. And by its light we have lit upon the gentle sensitive mind and lost the old nonchalance of the hand. Whether we have chosen chisel, pen, or brush, we are but critics or but half create. Timid, entangled, empty, and abashed, lacking the countenance of our friends. The other responds, And yet the chief imagination of Christendom, Dante Alighieri, so utterly found himself that he has made that hollow face of his more plain to the mind's eye than any face but that of Christ. And finally, the other responds, and did he find himself, or was the hunger that made it hollow, a hunger for the apple on the bough, most out of reach? And is that spectral image the man that Lappo and that Guido knew? I think he fashioned from his opposite an image that might have been a stony face staring upon a Bedouin's horsehair roof. From doored and windowed cliff, or half upturned among the coarse grass and the camel dung, he set his chisel to the hardest stone. Being mocked by Guido for his lecherous life, derided and deriding, driven out to climb that stair and eat that bitter bread, he found the unpersuadable justice. He found the most exalted lady loved by a man. Perhaps he did. He never got any closer to her physically than about that. Meanwhile, he was happily married with three children to somebody else. Now, this is so baffling to us in our time. We simply just do not know how to come to grips with it, except by depreciating Dante, by condescending to Dante, by knowing more than Dante. From my living with Dante here and there over the last few years, I can tell you one thing. Condescending to Dante is dangerous business. It's so tempting for us moderns to do that, to have him analyzed and know more than he knows. But it is risky business. In the article in which I I learned about this computer graphics technician and her Leonardo studies, was a column by Melvin Maddox in the Christian Science Monitor. And in it he reflects himself. He says, to look into the faces, to look into the eyes and smiles of the Madonnas of the 15th and 16th century, is to feel something lacking in oneself, some extra passion, some special serenity, some unblinking and intense understanding of life at its deepest reaches. What's being seen in that face? I'll dilate a little bit on a Yeats' thing. I I mentioned uh, his little rhetorical question. Does the imagination dwell the most upon a woman won or a woman lost? Here's an Edna St. Vincent Millay poem. I think I should have loved you presently and given in earnest words I flung in jest and lifted honest eyes for you to see and caught your hand against my cheek and breast and all my pretty follies flung aside that won you to me and beneath your gaze, naked of reticence and shorn of pride, spread like a chart my little wicked way. I that had been to you, had you remained but one more waking from a recurrent dream. Cherish no less the certain stakes I gained and walk your memory's halls, austere, supreme, a ghost in marble of a girl you knew who would have loved you in a day or two. Well, La Vita Nuova is... Title means a new life. Talk about the title in a little while. It's on the theme no less universal than boy meets girl. It's that simple. But uh, I th- suddenly thought of a line from Rethke, Oh, what prodigious mowing did we make! Uh, I should have thought, brought that line. Rethke talks about she was the mower and I, and I poor I the rake. <laughs> You see the double entendre on rake. She was the mower and I, poor I, the rake. But oh, what prodigious mowing did we make. Well, uh, likewise, Dante's little book on boy meets girl. It is a book of recollection, a dangerous thing to do, a reminiscence, a remembering and a reinterpreting. It's, it's felicitous that we studied the Gospel of John before we got to this because the Gospel of John does... For the Christian tradition, what Dante does for his own experience. Namely, it goes back and radically reinterprets it. And he returns to things that had happened to him a long time ago, or some time ago. Sometimes a long he begins with an event that happened when he was nine years old. But he goes back with great courage and determination to try to get and seriousness to try to get at the heart of it. The thing that separates this book, Boy Meets Girl, from most others is the intellectual power that Dante brings to the investigation of the meaning of the experience. But it begins with a reminiscence, which may sound uh, harmless enough, but uh, try it sometime. Some people go to therapists and they think, well, I think the therapist says, well, okay, what happened when you were five? They, well, it happened like this, and they find out they had to spend ten years dealing with that. It uh, can be dangerous stuff. Apropos of which, I bring you these lines from Robert Penn Warren. Beware of what you pray for. This is, what, this is the message of this one. Turn backward, turn backward, O oh time in your flight, and make me a child again just for tonight. Good Lord, he's wet the bed. Come bring the light. So watch out. So this one begins Dante telling an event that happened on, in, in May of 1274. Dante's almost nine He is taken by his father to a party at a local banker's house, Foco Portinari, who has a little daughter named Bice, nicknamed Bice, Beatrice. She's called Bice. There are lots of kids, and they eat, and then the kids are shooed outside, probably. And Dante looks over and sees Bice in a scarlet dress. And the bottom falls out of his universe. Something hits him. Some awakening stirs in him from which he never recovers. Now, we who have become so know-it-all about these things, and uh, we, we understand all the little psychological terms for this. So we, uh, if we didn't have the divine comedy in hand, we might do better at that kind of condescension. But something very powerful happened to him. It's interesting it happened that way because a couple of weeks ago, I quoted at length from Vladimir Solovyov's work. Solovyov, 19th century Russian mystic philosopher, poet, uh, whatever, had almost exactly the same experience. Solovyov's great awakening happened when he was nine years old in a downtown Moscow park when he looked up and saw a little girl about his age. And he was never able to put Humpty Dumpty back together. Dante writes this, At that moment I say truly that the vital spirit which lives in the most secret room of the heart began to tremble so strongly that that it affected dreadfully the least of my pulses. And he hears voices speaking to him from the various parts of his being. And the voices say, Behold the God who is stronger than I and who in his coming will rule over me. And again, now does your blessedness appear. And finally, the natural spirit weeping says, Alas, henceforth I shall be frequently impeded. And Dante says this, From that time, I say, love so mastered my soul, which was married so young to him and began to exert over me such care and authority through the power my imagination gave him, that I was forced to carry out all his wishes absolutely. He often ordered me to go and look for this youngest of his angels so that many times in my boyhood I would seek her out and would find her of so noble and so laudable a bearing that in all certainty one could ascribe to her those words of Homer, She seemed the daughter not of a mortal man but of a god. Next that happens, except for these keeping an eye out for her on the streets of Florence, is something that happens nine years later. I want to pause for a second and mention this nine business. Everything Dante wrote was a great hymn to the Trinity. I think it would be hard to ever become convinced that it was a hymn to the Trinity because he had learned the doctrine and therefore was trying to be loyal to it. I think it came out of something much more immediate in his experience than that. But everything he wrote was a hymn to the Trinity. And the Trinitarian economy that he employed rested heavily on the number nine, which is the square of three. And when nine happens, he takes note. The Divine Comedy is written in threes, multiples of threes, and so on. And here, in this book, La Vita Nova, he begins to notice this nine happening, and three, but mostly nine here. When he was nine, he first saw her. Nine years later, the next major encounter occurs. It happened at the ninth hour of the day, so he's noticing these details about it. Beatrice is walking down the street, dressed in white, with two of her friends. As she passes, she looks at Dante and greets him. It's interesting. We talked about the nuance of the greeting "peace" in the John's Gospel, which comes from the shalom, and various implications of that. This one is likewise nuanced. The "Salute" means hello, and it also means salvation. Dante got a lot more of the salvation than he did the hello. Most of us get the hello. Most of the time, that's the kind of salutation we give one another. Dante had an experience in which he suddenly realized a deeper possibility in the little salute. She saluted me with so virtuous a bearing that I seemed then and there to behold the very limits of blessedness. It was the first time words had reached his ears from Beatrice. He went home, he says, intoxicated, and took to the loneliness of his own room and fell into a strange slumber and had a vision of the lord of the terrible aspect. He calls him here the lord of the terrible aspect. It's love. And he says, speaking, he said many things among the which I could understand but few. Something must be said about La Vita Nuova and about today's session, by the way. It is inconclusive. It is written when Dante is in his late 20s, and it is a hell of a lot better than most of the rest of us could do in our late 20s. But it is still done in the late 20s. And he understands the limits of it at the very end and admits it, but he does not let go of it. And even here, he says, Love said things to me I couldn't understand most of them. But one he understood, and it really was the key one. Ego dominus tuus. I am your Lord. Love. And in his arms, love, held a woman sleeping, wrapped in a blood-colored cloth. And in his hand, he held Dante's heart. And he woke the woman up and fed it to her, and weeping left. Dante responded the way he responded to many of the great profound experiences of his life. He went and wrote a poem about it. He described the experience in the poem, and he sent the poem to acquaintances and friends and and some not yet friends, prominent poets, among them Guido Cavalcanti, who became a good friend of his because of this, these were people who were part of the the literary movement, Fideli d'Amore, the, those faithful to love in their writings. He sent them that poem and he said, how do you respond to this? And they responded with poems. And Guido responded with a poem, and they struck up a friendship. I mention that because it will come in later on, not because it's particularly germane at this point. Now, everybody has had the experience Dante's had. Most of us have had that experience. Now, maybe we, for whatever reasons, many of them probably suspect, maybe we don't register it as deeply as Dante registered Maybe we have already annealed ourselves to that experience, become too cynical for it. I fear that today sometimes kids at 15 are too cynical to have it. They've lost the mystery of holding hand. Maybe we have lost touch with that, but we've all had it. Charles Williams says, If it is this which often leads to marriage, then we shall not understand marriage until we understand this. If it is this which sometimes breaks up marriage, then we still more ought to understand it. John Neihart describes the, the dawn of a, this kind of an experience in his long poem, The Cycle of the West, in these words. And he, and he begins with this question. You know, mm-hmm. where, is, it, is it out there or what? And what? And was she fair, this woman? Legend keeps no answer, yet we know that she was young. If truly comes the tale by many a tongue that one of Red Hair's party fathered her. What need to know her features as they were? Was she not lovely as her lovers thought and beautiful as that wild love she wrought was fatal? Vessel of the world's desire... Did she not glow with that mysterious fire that lights the hearth or burns the roof tree down? That mysterious fire that lights the heart or burns the roof tree down. Charles Williams says, it leads to marriage and it leads to the breakup of marriage. In Dante, it led to neither. One more little indication that we've got a lot of catching up to do. It's interesting in our time, though, we have come to pigeonhole this experience. We regard it as we have decided that the purpose of this experience is to help us select a mate and having performed that purpose we can then get on with whatever else there is to do with life it's simply a momentary little thing helps us select a mate and then we can the analogy would be to think of some of these great mystical experiences which do lead to conversion and commitments or the abandonment of earlier commitments and so on but one can you imagine uh, Teresa of Avila deciding that the purpose of her experience was to help her decide which religion to join? And once she had decided that, she could dispense with the experiences. Well, I wanted to elaborate a little bit on this. Not that any of us need it. Well, maybe we all need it. Actually, maybe we all need it. So I'd like to take a few moments and elaborate on it, just to get us into to get some of our own libido flowing. Maybe uh, to to experience what again, what Dante's talking about. I want to read to you an event comparable to Dante's event, which happens to Stephen Dedalus in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. It goes like this. He was alone. He was unheeded, happy, and near to the wild heart of life. He was alone and young and willful and wild-hearted, alone amid a waste of wild air and brackish waters, and the sea harvest of shells and tangle and veiled gray sunlight and gay-clad, light-clad figures of children and girls and voices childish and girlish in the air. A girl stood before him in midstream, alone and still, gazing out to sea. She seemed like one whom magic had changed into the likeness of a strange and beautiful seabird. Her long, slender bare legs were delicate as a crane's and pure save where an emerald trail of seaweed had fashioned itself as a sign upon the flesh. Her thighs, fuller and soft-hued as ivory, were bared almost to the hips, where the white fringes of her drawers were like featherings of soft white down. Her slate-blue skirts were kilted boldly about her waist and dovetailed behind her. Her bosom was as a bird's soft and slight, slight and soft as the breast of some dark-plumaged dove. But her long, fair hair was girlish, and girlish, and touched with the wonder mortal beauty her face. She was alone and still, gazing out to sea, and when she felt his presence and the worship of his eyes, her eyes turned to him in quiet sufferance of his gaze, without shame or wantonness. Long, long she suffered his gaze and then quietly withdrew her eyes from his and bent them towards the stream. Gently stirring the water with her foot hither and thither, the first faint noise of gently moving water broke the silence. Low and faint and whispering, faint as the bells of sleep, hither and thither, hither and thither, and a faint flame trembled on her cheek. Heavenly God, cried Stephen's soul in an outburst of profane joy. He turned away from her suddenly and set off across the strand. His cheeks were aflame, his body aglow, his limbs were trembling. On and on and on and on he strode far out over the sand, singing wildly to the sea, crying to greet the advent of the life that had cried to him. Her image had passed into his soul forever, and no word had broken the holy silence of his ecstasy. Her eyes had called him and his soul had leaped at the call. Now we ought to do better than projection in trying to come to grips with that experience. Lest we think that it's a exclusively youthful experience. Sometimes it depends on how how the rest of our being has matured, but uh, as it happens later in life, it has other qualities to it, particularly in somebody as as sensitive as, say, Wallace Stevens. Here's a poem by Wallace Stevens written considerably later in life than the age of Daedalus in that passage. It's a poem called The Apostrophe to Vincentine. And it's a short poem, but it's in five parts, given five Roman numerals to set them off. And you see developing here, the scales falling off again and returning to something like, though it is a mature form, something like that original mystery and wonder. But it begins lost from it. This is about a 20-line version of the Divine Comedy. It starts lost in the dark wood and goes like this. I figured you as nude between monotonous earth and dark blue sky. It made you seem so small and lean and nameless, heavenly Vincentine. That's number one. First scene. Monotonous earth, dark blue sky, a nakedness that all it does is reveal smallness and leanness. Number two. I saw you then as warm as flesh. Brunette and yet not too brunette. As warm, as clean, your dress was green, was whited green, green Vincentine. Something else began to happen. Dress, flesh, green. Resuscitation. Number three. Then you came walking in a group of human others, voluble. Yes, you came walking, Vincentine. Yes, you came talking. Boy. Number four. This is the big one. And what I knew you felt came then. Monotonous earth I saw become illimitable spheres of you. Five, turned Vincentine, turned heavenly Vincentine, and that white animal so lean turned heavenly, heavenly Vincentine. Well, Dante was committed to the laws of love. The laws of love, the love fidele d'amore kind of love, were curious by our standards. One of them was the beloved must never know that you love her or him, that that is kept discreet. And Dante hit upon a way to do this quite accidentally. He was in church one time, and he was not being terribly successful in his earnest attempts to take his eyes off Beatrice. There was, however, between himself and Beatrice in the church, another woman. And every time this other woman turned around to look at Dante, it looked to her like he was looking right at her. And she kept turning around. And Dante saw that this is what he would do. He could then write poems about his love. He also noticed that all her friends noticed the same thing. Florence, apparently, for the people in their late teens, was a great rumor mill. That's all you needed. He says, ah, now I can write these poems that are about to, to explode inside me. And everybody will think that they are poems to her. He called it the scream, the simulacra. So he sets to writing the poems. He found a way to do it without violating the rules of courtly love. George de Forest Lord says, At one moment he had found his theme, his exegetical method, and the source of his new poetic style. And the source of it, of course, was the salutation of Beatrice. And now he began to haunt the streets of Florence, hoping to meet Beatrice there and to have her greet him again. He says, I say when in, in any way she appeared, just through the hope of receiving her marvelous greeting, I had no enemies left, but was instead possessed by such a flame of charity that I was made to forgive anyone who had injured me. And if at any moment someone had asked me a question about any matter in the world, my answer with my face clothed in humility would have been quite simply love now we say well was he right or wrong no matter what the question the answer is love and the key to it was what he called this greatest source of salvation the salutation of Beatrice became the greatest source of salvation our friend Paul Lachance is in Chicago finishing up a definitive study of the medieval mystic Angela Foligno, who lived about these same times, and one of her contemporaries, Ubertino da Casale, met Angela, and he said, When I met her and looked into her face, the Spirit of Christ was born in me. Likewise for Dante. And Dante now begins to grapple with that apparent heresy. It, that is to say, at least it has her- heretical possibilities, you see, by standard Christian understanding. And the first intimation in the La Vita Nuova is this. He meets Beatrice in the street, and this happens, which is that what we've been talking about. You see what happened? His little trick worked. And pretty soon everybody thought that Dante really had his eye on this other young woman. And one of those who got word of that was Beatrice. And she passed him in the street. And he was waiting. He saw her three blocks away coming. He's waiting right there, trembling in his boots. And she looks the other way. And it devastated him. See, we can kind of think about it in terms of little teenage things, it was devastating. And he went home and wept bitterly and fell asleep and had a dream or a vision. He said, I seemed to see in the room, seated at my side, a youth in radiant white garments who kept his eyes fixed on me in deep thought. You recognize this youth in radiant white garments? Sixteenth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. It's the angel at the tomb. Or in the Gospel of John, why are you weeping? He's weeping, and here is this dazzling youth in white garments looking at him. And when he had gazed some time, I thought he sighed and called to me in these words, My son, it is time for us to lay aside our counterfeiting, our simulacra, our screen." By the way, this this young woman that Dante had feigned his attraction for had left town, too, which complicated the situation. And so he is told in this vision that we're not going to use that device anymore. And one wonders why. And then he said he was still weeping, and Dante said to him, why are you weeping? It's the reverse of the scene at the tomb, you see. Now Dante is asking him, why are you weeping? And he responded, I am as the center of a circle to which all parts of the circumference bear an equal relation, but with you this is not so. Now there's a lot of people who have tried their hands at what he meant by that. Dante doesn't explicate it specifically. Seems to me the strong implication is, particularly because he said we're not going to, we're going to do away with our counterfeiting. The strong implication is only by placing Beatrice at the center will you yourself become centered. We have to eliminate this other disguise that you're using. So Dante began to address Beatrice in his poems, which gave him a tremendous outlet for these this emotional stuff that was happening to him. For the young women of Florence, in front of whom and everybody else, he was... Uh, making something of a spectacle of himself with this outpouring devotional poetry. He became a curious object, and they probably good-naturedly began to kid him a little bit. Something along the line of, you know, are you going to fish or cut bait? His response was that the goal of his desire was Beatrice's salutation. He wrote them a poem, that is to say, these young women. He had this line that came into his mind and drove him to write this poem. The first line was dictated to him. The line is, Ladies who possess the intellect of love. And he began to understand something about this thing called the intellect of love. He would only speak to those who, under, who had the intellect of love. They were the only ones remotely capable of coming to grips with what he had to say. Ladies who possess the intellect of love, to tell you of my lady, I desire not that I claim to show her praise entire, but so by speech to ease my mind's sad plight. I would read that whole poem, but it was... It's highly elaborate in the original and highly complicated in the English translation, so I'll just read you a Yeats poem, which says about the same thing. It's called Words. I had this thought a while ago. My darling cannot understand what I have done or what would do in this blind, bitter land. And I grew weary of the sun until my thoughts cleared up again, remembering that the best I have done was done to make it plain. That every year I have cried, at length my darling understands it all. Because I have come into my strength and words obey my call. That had she done so, who can say what would have shaken from the sieve? I might have thrown poor words away and been content to live. And that's the essence of what Dante wrote to these young women. Later on in this poem, he says this. This will give you a sense of the tone of it. She passes by and love throws ice on hearts of wicked men. So all their thoughts are frozen and expire. Whoever stood firm to look and admire would be made noble or else he would die. When she chances to find a man nearby, worthy of seeing her, her power is displayed. Out of the happiness she grants, he is made so humble, he forgets any injury. Thus God bestowed on her the greater grace that none ends ill who greets her face to face. Love says of her, How can a mortal creature be fair and pure to so full a degree he looks and swears to himself that she was made by God, portending something new. This, I think, is the key to this poem: she was made by God, portending something new. We talked in the last couple of weeks about this strange thing that happened in the south of France in the 11th century, and what's it all about? Dante begins to understand that it has, that it is full of divine portents. It may mark a departure on a new course made by God portending something new. The Italian, cosa nuova. Second Isaiah says, See, I am doing a new thing. Even now it comes to light. Can you see it? I am making a road in the wilderness. So Dante begins to, in the emotional wilderness that's brought to him by this experience, begins to see the light of a new thing. And we who are living 700 years later may still be in that same wilderness. He falls ill and has dreams of the death of Beatrice. And it's interesting because he begins to describe, you see what's creeping into this is the Christian coloration of this experience. First indication is the angel at the tomb. And now he begins to describe the death of Beatrice using images very similar to the images in the Gospel of Matthew that are brought to bear on the death of Jesus on the cross. Then I seem to see how with gradual pace the sun darkened And the stars shone instead, how he and they wept overhead, how birds dropped as they flew through the air, and the earth quaked there. And then a man appeared, hoarse, pale of face, saying, What's wrong with you? Has no one said your lady, who once was so fair, is dead? And he awakens from these dreams, recovers his health and still broods over the implication of all this. And then he has another experience of Beatrice. Again on the streets of Florence, he sees her. She's with a friend. She's walking slightly behind her friend. Her friend happens to be Dante's poetry friend, Guido Cavalcante. Guido's mistress is a young woman whose name is Giovanna, whose nickname was Primavera, which means spring, which literally means the first to come, which spring is. And there's Beatrice with Giovanna. A non-Dante, which most of us, I guess, are, would have looked out and seen Giovanna and Beatrice. But things were happening to Dante which caused him to see something else. Namely, Giovanna is the feminine for Giovanni. Giovanni is John. John is the precursor of, guess who? Christ, John the Baptist. Primavera means the first to come. He who, he or she who comes first. And Dante suddenly sees the revelation of what it's all about. And also, Guido had led Dante into the Fedele d'Amore school of understanding things. So that here we have, and Dante says this, it, it was like John the Baptist, crying, prepare the way of the Lord. And coming behind him was love. Well, we know who came in the wake of John the Baptist. Very boldly, he begins to understand that this is comparable to that. After Dante's death, the Vita Nuova was reprinted uh, under church sponsorship. They eliminated this section about which Charles Williams writes this, in an anxiety to control the flesh, they did away with everything except the flesh. Something of that habit still lasts among our instructors. But you see what he's beginning to say about this experience. In the middle of a poem that he was composing, Dante gets word that Beatrice has died. Comes as a not un prepared, but unexpected, not unprepared because he had had these dreams. was devastating. And he takes the pen that he had been writing the poem with and writes these words, quotation from the first verse of the Book of Lamentations. Oh, how lonely she sits, the city once thronged with people, how suddenly she is widowed. When we get into the Divine Comedy, we'll see how the city and Beatrice are linked. Florence and Beatrice are linked, which mythologically is an enormous leap from Dante's literary predecessor, Virgil, for whom the city and the woman were contrasting. Aeneas had to abandon Dido in order to found Rome. But for Dante, they are the same, perhaps because... It was wandering the streets of Florence in the hope of coming upon Beatrice that had been such a preoccupation of his for many years. But in any case, he was struck dumb, about as dumb as a poet like Dante is going to be struck. And he doesn't write about her death. He writes about his grief. Sighing comes and grief and the desire to find no comforter save only death who makes all sorrow brief, to him who for a while turns in his thought how she has been among us and is not. Enormous watershed has been crossed in Dante's experience, and he stays with it. It is, I think, impossible to, to read La Vita Nuova, sensitively, without feeling the parallels to the gospel story of the crucifixion and the time after the crucifixion. And Dante says, sighing comes in grief and the desire to find no comforter. Come back to that in a minute, not least, reason for which is that the the word paraclete has been translated as comforter. But he does not want to be comforted. He wants to get to the bottom of it. But he is at a total loss. Helen Wendler, who's a professor of literature at Harvard and a portrait critic at the New Yorker, writes this. Unfocused and chaotic libido does not provide a channel along which thought can move. Once there is an object of desire... The mind can exert all its familiar diversions, decoration, analysis, speculation, fantasy, drama, and so on. But with no beloved object, the mind is at a loss. And Dante had lost his last crutch to lean on when in the vision he is told to abandon your counterfeiting and no longer pretend that your affections are going out to these other women and put only Beatrice in the center place. Put all your emotional eggs in one basket, please, which is exactly what the Gospel of John tries to get Christians to do with regard to Jesus, so that when the cross comes, it will have consequence. And Dante did that, and she died, and there he is. Suddenly, there's nothing. It has all gone. Everything that has had given his, his personal existence coherence vanishes, and he is stunned. With no beloved object, the mind is at a loss. Unfocused and chaotic libido with no channel. So I want to read this poem by Edna St. Vincent Millay. You have to to appreciate the wonder of this poem. You have to remember now she's talking about an incident that's happening in a subway train. She says, If I should learn in some quite casual way, that you were gone, not to return again. Read from the back pages of a paper, say, held by a neighbor in a subway train, how at a corner of this avenue and such a street, so are the papers filled. A hurrying man who happened to be you, at noon today, happened to be killed. I should not cry aloud. I should not cry Aloud, or wring my hands in such a place, I should but watch the station lights rush by with a more careful interest on my face or raise my eyes and read with greater care where to store furs and how to treat the hair. You see that sudden blank stare and then she's reading the little ads up on the, side of the subway train. Unfocused and chaotic libido does not provide a channel along which thought can move. Well, that's Dante. And then comes the great test. And I would say this is the great test, if we want to make this parallel, and I think it's worth making. It's the great test that faced the first followers of Jesus at his crucifixion. And for Dante, the test comes in an odd way. I lifted my eyes and saw a young and very beautiful lady who was gazing down on me from a window with a gaze full of pity, so that the very sum of pity appeared gathered together in her. And I said to myself, certainly with her also must abide most noble love. And he wrote a sonnet about it in which, which ends I said within my soul, Lo, with this lady dwells the counterpart of the same love who holds me weeping now. And he became preoccupied with this lady in the window who had seen him in his wretchedness and had felt pity for him. And it looked for all the world there for a while, reading the La Vita Nuova, pretending one doesn't know how it comes out. It looks for all the world as though Dante is going to find somebody else, and life is going to go on. It happened after this that whensoever I was seen by this lady, she became pale and piteous as though it had been with love. And I remembered many times my own noble lady who was of like paleness. Many times I cursed the unsteadfastness of my eyes and said to them inwardly, Was not your grievous condition of weeping one to make others weep? And will you now forget this thing because a lady looks upon you who so looks merely in compassion of the grief you showed for your own blessed lady. This is a catch-22. He says the reason you find yourself so profoundly attracted to her is because she, has, she pities you so deeply. The reason she's pitying you is because you're weeping for the death of Beatrice. You see the catch-22? And he said to himself this, Lady is young, beautiful, gentle, wise. Perchance it was love himself who set her in my path that so my life might find peace. And we all agree with that. I, I think I speak for the 20th century. We all agree with that. Life must go on. But for Dante, Simon Weil, the French mystic, said, That love which is the central core and intangible essence of joy is not a consolation. It leaves pain completely intact. That love, which is the central core and intangible essence of joy, is not a consolation. It leaves pain completely intact. And so, in the ninth hour, again, Dante saw a vision. And the vision was, guess what, Beatrice, aged nine, in a crimson dress. And he turned away from the lady in the window. And all his thoughts, again, turned to Beatrice, even though dead, Praise the Lord anyhow, as my cousin's bumper sticker used to say. This is something I, I say must be compared with what happens to Peter in the, if you read between the lines in the Gospel. He has an experience which says, this dead one is still the center of my existence. However ridiculous that may seem, that was his discovery. He writes a sonnet at the end of La Vita Nuova*. the last sonnet in the book, begins, Beyond the sphere that turns with widest gyre, Out of my heart a sigh ascends above. A new intelligence that weeping love bestows on him attracts him ever higher. Doesn't sound much to us, but it's a little bit like E equals MC square. He calls it a new intelligence, intelligenza nuova. We would call it a new consciousness. And what is the source of the new consciousness? Weeping love. A new consciousness. He had talked about a cosa nuova, a new thing. God had made her portending a new thing and now he's talking about a new consciousness and what is the seedbed of the new consciousness? A broken heart, weeping love. And he says, I saw things which determined that I should say nothing further of this blessed one, speaking of Beatrice, until such a time as I could discourse more worthily concerning her. And to this end I have labored all I can, as she well knows. Wherefore, if it be his pleasure, through whom is life of all things, that my life continue with me a few years, it is my hope that I shall write concerning her what has not before been written of any woman. And he did. It's a divine comedy. Twenty years later. And he refers to Beatrice as now gazing on the face of God. In the last paragraph of the Louisa Nova, he begins to speak of Beatrice in the present tense. Everywhere else in the book, he's spoken of her in the past tense. I mentioned earlier, he began with recollection. That's the purpose of recollection. And now he speaks in the present tense, exactly the way the, the, the first Christians did. It's not what was, it's what is. And he's in another state, a new consciousness that is born from weeping love. And he turned to philosophy and politics in order to while away the time between then and when he was capable of doing justice to the subject. And he came back to it with the Divine Comedy, which we'll get to pretty soon. But I would like to add a little epilogue to all this because it is so stunning to find that he's talking about a new consciousness that has weeping love for its uh, source. Because in the 20th century we've outgrown all that, haven't we? We know, Eliot says, we know too much and are convinced of too little. We have tried to have it be otherwise in a way. We've tried to see this love experience, uh, to understand it in a larger way, be more sophisticated than Dante we're more sophisticated than Dante or at least we've tried to be with regard to this experience but it fails Yeats in his own way one of my favorite poems in Yeats a poem called Adam's Curse I'll read the whole thing I just want to get to the last part of it but I love it so much I'll read the whole thing we sat together at one summer's end that beautiful mild woman your close friend and you and I and talked of poetry I said a line will take us hours maybe yet if it does not seem a moment's thought our stitching and unstitching has been naught. Better to go down upon your marrowed bones and scrub a kitchen pavement or break stones in all kinds of weather, for to articulate sweet sounds together is to work harder than all of these, and yet be thought an idler by the noisy set of bankers, schoolmasters, and clergymen the martyrs call the world. And thereupon that beautiful mild woman, for whose sake there's many a one shall find out all heartache on finding that her voice is sweet and low, replied, To be born a woman is to know, although they do not talk of it at school, that we must labor to be beautiful. I said to certain that there's no fine thing since Adam's fall, but needs much laboring. And here comes the condescension. There have been lovers who thought love should be so much compounded of high courtesy that they would sigh and quote with learned looks precedents out of beautiful old books yet now it seems an idle trade enough. We sat grown quiet at the name of love and saw the last embers of daylight die and in the trembling blue-green of the sky a moon, worn as if it had been a shell, washed by time's waters as they rose and fell about the stars and broke in days and years. I had a thought for no one's but your ears that you were beautiful, that I strove to love you in the old highway of love, that it had all seemed happy, and yet we'd grown as weary-hearted as that hollow moon. Not the death of Beatrice, but the death of the, of the Beatrician moment. One of Yeats's biographers, A.G. Stock, says this: Yeats' great love was for Maud Gone. He says, this poem was written before the day in 1903 when a telegram handed to him as he was about to begin a lecture told him that Maud had married Jean McBride. The news was so stunning that he gave the lecture as if he had not received it. Remember that thing about unfocused libido? The news was so stunning he gave the lecture as if he had not received it. But Adam's curse shows that in his heart He knew already what the marriage could only confirm. His love was irrevocable, its object unattainable, his youth gone. What a fabulous discovery if Dante is anywhere close to the truth. His love was irrevocable, its object unattainable, and his youth gone. Wordsworth said, a deep despair hath humanized my soul. Andrew Marvell wrote a poem called The Definition of Love in the 17th century. Now this is called The Definition of Love, so get out your pencils and paper. My love is of a birth as rare as tis for objects strange and high. It was begotten by despair upon impossibility. Magnanimous despair alone could show me so divine a thing. Where feeble hope could ne'er have flown, but vainly flapped its tinsel wing. And yet I quickly might arrive where my extended soul is fixed, but fate does iron wedges drive and always crowds itself betwixt. As lines, so loves oblique, may well themselves in every angle greet, but ours so truly parallel, though infinite, can never meet. Therefore the love which doth us bind, but fate so enviously debars, is the conjunction of the mind and the opposition of the star. Hardly anything is more offensive to the 20th century sensibility than that kind of stuff. Either they were deluded beyond hope and Dante with them, or we've lost touch with one of the great, strange mysteries. In the 19th century, the little, frail, delicate, charming Victorian Emily Dickinson, who in my estimation makes General Patton look like little Lord Fauntleroy, you know, wrote this poem. I cannot live with you. It would be life. And life is over there, behind the shelf. The sexton keeps the key to. Nor could I rise with you. Because your face would put out Jesus's. That new grace glowed plain and foreign on my homesick eye. Except that you than he shone closer by. So we must meet apart. You there, I here. With just the door ajar that oceans are, and prayer, and that white sustenance despair. Our incomprehension is a measure of our condition. That white sustenance despair. Well, I was going to, back to the 20th century, but I do have a little thing here that goes back to the 8th or something. Helen Vendler's comments again. This time she's talking about Wallace Stevens as self and beloved alike become with greater or lesser velocity the final dwarves of themselves. As social awareness diminishes dreams of self-transcendence, the poet sees dream, hope, love and trust, those activities of the most august imagination, crippled, contradicted, dissolved and called into question, embittered. This history is the history of every intelligent and receptive human creature as the illimitable claims on existence made by each one of us are checked, baffled, frustrated, and reproved, whether by our own subsequent perceptions of their impossible grandiosity or by the accidents of fate and chance or by our betrayal of others or by old age and its failures of capacity. Sounds grim, doesn't it? Port Rumi says, A moth sees light And goes into fire. You should see fire, and go toward light. I'm going to conclude with this, and then this. I want to conclude with something that the English Benedictine Sebastian Moore said, and you are going to think that's a terribly inconclusive conclusion, and uh, you're going to be right uh, for a number of reasons because I don't think. Well, I don't think possible to be conclusive about it. I I'm not conclusive about it. And Dante wasn't conclusive at the at the end of the La Vita Nuova. And we're trying to just keep up with Dante. But a new consciousness that has its roots in weeping love. And as some older poets have reflected on that, it has to do with something like despair. Sebastian Moore says there is a conspiracy on the part of the cause of all our desiring to awaken us to itself, to bring about a generic arousal. When Dante experienced a new consciousness coming slowly into being out of the ashes, out of weeping love. He may have hit on something which we have gone out of our way to ignore, and to the extent that we ignore it, we, we end up living it out. We become its puppets instead of its servants. This concludes Romance Mythology, Introduction to Dante's Divine Comedy. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.